Last uh, Sunday was Father's Day, and my thoughts were towards Psalm 103, verse 13, which is the memory verse for today, which says, like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them who fear him. And as we read Psalm 103, we begin to see there's so much there that you, we can't just jump to verse 13. So we started at verse 1 and kind of eased through it. So let's do that again, and we may be in Psalm 103 a short time. It won't be long, but there's so many wonderful things here. Psalm 103, please open your Bible to it, Psalm 103. And we will just do quickly some comments in review, and then we will begin, uh, think about verse 11 where we did not get to, Psalm 103. Let's read verses 1 and 2. David is the human author, and he is stirring himself up to his duty. What is the highest duty of man? What is our chief duty? What is it we're most responsible to do? It is to thank and praise God, to give him praise and thanks. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. And of course, we can enjoy him in this new covenant of grace that he's made with all who believe in Jesus. So in verses 1 and 2, the scripture says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And so David is talking to himself and he's saying now, get with the program. And the program is this, praise God, bless him with all that you are. Oh, my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. No, no half-heartedness here. Uh, no formalities. Let it flow. Let it overflow. Pour out to him your heartfelt praises. It may come out with te as tears. It may come out with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It may come out that you just laugh with joy, but do not be formal with such a kind and good God. With all your heart and with all your soul, both the inward man and the whole man, let it be employed in this highest duty, which is to praise God. And I told you, as you look at Psalm 103, there is not one request in the whole psalm. He doesn't ask God for anything. You can read it again. There is not a petition. There's not a request. This is nothing but pure praise. It is a heart overflowing and thanking God for what he has done and for who he is. I had a woman come up after the service last week and so encouraged me. And she said, you know, I've been kind of stuck in my praying. And I find myself just kind of saying words and praying the same things over and over. She said, but Psalm 103 has jump-started me. And I see now that my praying can now, instead of just taking my list and saying, God, bless this and help me and, and do this, I can come before him and praise him for some specific benefits that Psalm 103 tells me about. And she said, I'm, I'm going to start my praying a little differently now. And I thought, 
That's great encouragement to, to me to hear her say that. How is your worship? How is your praying? Do you come with a grocery list, a Christmas list? Do you come with your request and you forget who you're talking to? He's a great king, beloved. Amen. He is Yahweh, verse 1 says. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He has revealed himself as a covenant-keeping God. He has a holy name, verse 1. He's a great benefactor, verse 2. He gives benefits generously and abundantly and ceaselessly. He gives and gives and gives again. And what are some of these benefits? Well, the first one on the list, the first one that he mentions, verse 3, is, I will not forget, I will not be slack to think about this first and chief benefit that I have. He forgives all my iniquities. He has forgiven his people. He has forgiven us. And I told you about that old country boy that said, he has forgiven me all my sins and I'm never going to let him hear the end of it. I'm going to praise him and I'm going to thank him and I'm going to thank him for a thousand years and I'm going to thank him for 10,000 years. We sang it this morning, didn't we? I've got 10,000 reasons and I'm going to do it for 10,000 years and I'll be doing it for eternity, thanking a heavenly father and a glorious elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, for loving me and washing me and forgiving me and making me one of his. First benefit, first one on the list, top of the list, he forgives all thine iniquities. It is what we most need, forgiveness. It is our greatest problem. It is our greatest and chiefest concern. How can we be right with God? How can we, a sinner, be brought back into a relationship with our maker? Forgiveness must happen. And forgiveness is based upon the work of Jesus, not my works. We sang it in that beautiful song. It's by blood, not by merit. I love that line in that song. It's by grace, not by works. It's the work of Jesus, not the work of Alan, or not your work. My works are filthy works. My works are, are tainted with sin. The best works I have are tainted with sin. And I can't hope for salvation based on my works. But the work of Jesus is strong, and the work of Jesus is perfect. And the work of Jesus is a flawless work. And when I trust his work, God imputes the righteousness of Jesus to all who believe on Jesus. And then he gives me the Holy Spirit and helps me to do genuine works for his glory thereafter. So works does have a place, but it's not to gain salvation. It's because of salvation. Do you understand that, right? He forgives all our iniquities and heals all our diseases. And we said because of those two in close proximity there in verse 3, because of the parallelism, it, the diseases there that the psalmist probably has in mind is the disease of sin. It is our greatest disease. He forgives all our iniquities and heals all our diseases. There's a great disease in this world. What is it? Cancer? Well, yes, that's one of them. In the Bible, uh, leprosy was the big one that you most wanted to avoid. Leprosy is dealt with in several chapters in the Bible as an illustration of what sin does. It cuts people off. It cuts them off from the fellowship of God's people. It cuts them off from going to the temple. 
It cuts them off from holy things. That's what sin does. It cuts us off. But leprosy, or cancer, is that the worst thing? COVID, is that it? Is that what we, uh, the greatest thing? You know, you can be healed of cancer and you can be healed of COVID. In fact, most about 99% are who get it. They recover about 99% of the time. There's something far worse than any of, of things like cancer and COVID and leprosy. There is a disease that is fatal all the time. And every one of us is born with it. It's the disease of sin. And it has many symptoms. You know, you get a certain disease and you are told, well, here's what is going to happen to your body because of this disease. It's going to go through this, these steps. Because of sin, there are many symptoms we have. We have uh, hard hearts and we have proud minds and we have wayward feet and we have shifty eyes and we have double forked tongues. We deceive and we lie. We have big egos. We puff ourselves up. All these things are the result of and symptoms of sin, isn't it? Self-righteousness. We see everybody else's flaws and we imagine ourselves to be perfect. We forget there's only one who is perfect. And thankfully, he's our champion. He's the one that lived perfectly for us. It's the Lord Jesus. Our boast is on him only. Our glory is in him alone. All other ground is sinking sand. He's the solid rock. He forgives all our iniquities. He heals all our diseases. There's a great, great, great pandemic, and all people have got it. It's called sin, and it is fatal, but there is a divine cure, but you must take it in time. You must not delay too long, and you must take it as prescribed by the great physician. You can't come to God on your terms. You must come on his terms. There is a divine remedy. It's the person and work of Jesus. And you must come to him in repentant faith. You humble yourself. You throw down your self-righteousness and your idols and your misconceptions. And you humbly come and you receive him by faith. And all who receive him are accepted by God. They're forgiven. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, John 1.12. So there is a divine remedy for this great malady, but you must come in time. Don't wait until your life is gone. Don't wait until your mind is gone. You live for years and years and years and years, and you live stubbornly, and you live proudly, and you say, well, one day, one day, one day, and then all of a sudden... Your faculties have gone, and you can't even think a right thought anymore, and you squandered your whole life, and you come to the end of it without a Savior. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Today's the day of salvation. Come to him now. Come now. Come even now as I preach. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ in faith. Run in your heart to the Son of God who died on a cross and rose from the dead. He forgives iniquities and heals diseases. He redeems, verse 4, thy life from destruction 
He crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. And we told you there, we looked at it. We took some time to look at it. He goes in verse 7 and 8 talking about Moses and the children of Israel. And then he gives this great confession in verse 8 that's uh, basically a repeat of Exodus 34, 6, where God proclaims his name to Moses. And he gives us this fundamental Old Testament confession of God's character. Who is he? What's he like? He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy, abounding in hesed. It's a great Hebrew word, kesed. That's a better pronunciation. It's 250 times in your Old Testament. It's here in verse 4, translated loving kindness. Here in verse 8, translated mercy. Verse 11, translated mercy. Verse 17, translated mercy. It's one of those Hebrew words that we have a hard time getting into English because it's so deep and rich and full. Some translations say his mercy, and some say his loving kindness, and some say his steadfast love, and some say his enduring love. It's, it's a love that's a stubborn love that won't let go. It's a love where God enters into a covenant with people and will never break that covenant. It's not sentiment. It's commitment. It's not something that we feel for a moment and we're stirred for a moment. We have sentimental Stirrings, and then we forget it in a few days. It's not like that at all. It's a loyal love, a covenant love, a steadfast love, a stubborn love even, if you will. God calls sinners to himself and joins them to himself in union with Christ, and he says, I will never let you go. And not only that, I'll never let you go from me. If you were to be foolish enough to wander like a sheep, I will come after you because you're mine. I will reclaim you. I will chasten you, but I will never let you go. You see, this plan of salvation began when? Did it begin when you believed? No, it began way before that. This plan of salvation devised by the Father and the Son and the Spirit began in eternity past. And it is being worked out now in time. And there will not be one bit of slippage in this plan. These links joined one to another cannot be broken by man nor Satan. And so when he calls you to Christ, he will not ever abandon you, dear Christian. He is faithful to keep his kessed, his steadfast love, his mercy that is plenteous. That doesn't mean he's a wimp or a softy. He will deal with his people as he needs to. Like a father chastens his children, so the Lord does what? Chastens those who are his. He is bringing us toward what? Holiness. Holiness. He is bringing us to 
conformity to Christ, which will look like a holy being, a holy person. And to get from where we are now to perfect holiness and conformity to Christ is going to require a lot from an attentive father. And he will attend to us. He will teach us, rebuke us, encourage us, feed us, come after us, discipline us, and he will never leave us. This is our Lord. Bless his holy name. Verse 9 says he will not always chide or accuse. He will not keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And I think that's where we got to. So let's begin now, verse 11. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy. There's our word again, his chesed, his steadfast love, his loyal covenant-keeping love. It's great toward them that fear him as far as the east is from the west. So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And so did you notice verse 11, 12, and 13? Look at it again. 11, 12, and 13. A threefold as. As the heaven is high above the earth. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west. Verse 13. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. A threefold as, a threefold comparison. Let's look at those for a second. Verse 11, as the heaven is high above the earth. How high is that, by the way? Can we measure that? Have you ever looked through a telescope? Have you seen these things on the internet where here's planet earth and here's our solar system, and here's the sun, and then here's the Milky Way, and here's this, and, and it backs off and keeps backing off and backing off, and you see how unbelievably vast God's creation is. And yet, way down here on this little speck, this third rock from the sun, this thing called planet Earth, God is doing his, his chief work. He, there he puts man and woman made in his image. To that place he sends his son to that place the sun makes the pavement. I've often wondered, why is the universe so vast? And yet all the Bible is about something happening right here on this little speck. And I think now I've got an answer. You ready for it? God made such a vast universe. Well, two answers. Psalm 19.1 is one answer. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. So God makes such a vast universe to demonstrate his glory. He did it because he can. He did it because he's pleased to do so. He did it to demonstrate his power. What kind of God could make such a vast, almost, to us, almost looks like infinite? But he did it to demonstrate his glory. He is this kind of God. He is this great. 
But the second reason found in our text, he made such a vast universe, and here we are on this little speck to demonstrate something of his grace. Because he says, my mercy toward you can be measured like this, as the heaven is higher than the earth. That's how much mercy I have for you. That's how much steadfast love I have for my people. It can't be measured. It is immeasurable. It is immense. It is infinite. God doesn't just put up with his people. I remember a dear brother years ago, we always used to pray. and He, he said, thank you, Lord, for putting up with me. And I appreciated that kind of prayer because he was a humble man to say that. He knew what kind of missteps he had made and miswords, misspoken at times. And he said, I thank you for putting up with me. But the fact of the matter is, beloved, God doesn't just put up with his people. He loves his people. He has taken us to himself and claimed us for his own. He has bound himself with with promises and oaths. God need not make an oath, but he swears by himself and makes an oath. Because he can swear by no greater, he swears by himself, Hebrews says. And he takes to himself a people and he puts his mark on them and he puts his spirit in them. And he says, no man will snatch them out of my hand. No created thing can separate my people from me. And so, when we think about the vastness of the universe, there is an illustration of how rich and high, yeah, that high, as the heaven is high above the earth, there's an illustration of God's mercy. So maybe that's the second reason, not only for His glory, but to demonstrate His grace. That is how great my mercy is toward them who fear me. Second, as... As far as the east is from the west. So now we've come back down to earth. We're no longer looking up to an infinite heaven and thinking it's that high. Now we've come back down to earth and now we're going east and west. And so how far is it from the east to the west? Well, if you start going west and keep going west and look for the east, you just never get there. It's the the furthest measure which the earth can render as far as east from west. So you keep going. You're looking for the west and you're going. And it is immeasurable. It is this far that he has removed our transgressions from us. East and west never meet. It's a symbolic portrait of God's forgiveness. When he forgives our sin, he separates us from it and he doesn't remember it anymore. That's the new covenant promise. I will remember their sins no more. Which means he doesn't hold it against us. He takes it out of the record book and destroys it. This is his forgiveness. How much does God forgive? Well, he forgives a whole lot better than we do. Amen. We say, well, I've forgiven her. I've forgiven him. And we keep dragging it up again and again. Dig it back up, dredge it back up. God forgives and God separates that forgiven one, you and I, from our sin so that it and us never come together again. He takes it as far as east from west. 
I don't need to dredge it up. Satan can't bring it back to, to the, into the record. God has taken it out of the record. God has removed it from us. He's wiped our record clean. And he calls on us, by the way, to model that kind of forgiveness. And we don't, ne- we don't ever hit that mark, but we strive toward truly knowing what it is to forgive. You've been done wrong? Can't live in this world without some injustices happening to you. Maybe one or two big ones, maybe a whole bunch of little ones, maybe a whole lifetime of injustices. So what does he call us to do? Forgive as we are forgiven. Let it go. There are, in the scriptures, a whole bunch of of word pictures that the writer paints to describe what forgiveness is. Uh, he, he uses words and phrases, and he uses, uh, you, you look at the etymology, the, the root of meaning of some words, and the idea behind many of these, and there's about 75, by the way, about 75 different word pictures that the Holy Spirit dips his brush into and paints before our eyes so we can understand what forgiveness means. And some of these, if I can just give you a quick taste of a couple or, or several, some of the word pictures painted by the Holy Spirit, it means to turn the key and open the cell door and let the prisoner go. I'm not going to hold you captive anymore. I'm going to put the key in, turn it, and say, you're free. We have no quarrel anymore. It means to write in large letters across a debt. Nothing owed. And you write it large so all can see and so you can remember it too. Nothing owed. It is to take the gavel in the courtroom and pound it on the, pound it loud and clear and say, not guilty. Not guilty. You say, well, am I just supposed to minimize people's Doing me wrong? No. But you let God deal with them if there's dealings to be done. Let him avenge. He will avenge. He can do it better than you. Your job is to to open the prison door, to write in large letters, to pound the gavel. It, It was to shoot an arrow. An archer would take an arrow and put it on his bow, and he would stretch it, and he would shoot it so high and so far that the arrow could never be found. It would just go and go and go, and it would go out of sight. And you would never find that error. And that was the way it was painted by the Holy Spirit. It would never be found again. It was to take the garbage inside a house and bundle it all up, take it out of the house, dispose of it, and the house would now be clean and fresh, and the odor of that would be gone. That was a word picture painted by the Holy Spirit to illustrate forgiveness. It was to loose the moorings of a ship and release it out to the open sea and it would catch the wind in its sails and it would be no longer tied and bound in that spot. It was free to go. It meant to grant a full pardon to a condemned criminal, a criminal, one who did wrong. He committed a crime, but in forgiveness, I grant a pardon to you as far as my trying to get even goes. It was to 
go into the wrestling pit, and it was to take your opponent that you have a stranglehold on, and it was to release that stranglehold and relax and give him his life back. You had the power to hurt him and to maybe end his life, but you release and you relax your grip and you let him go. It was to take a sandblaster and go to a wall that graffiti had been painted on and all kind of uncleanness on it. It was to take a sandblaster and blast it and leave the wall looking like new. It was to remove the mark. It was to remove the mess. And, and we take our minds and we make memories. We, we hold it in our mind. We relive it over and over again. We say, well, I've forgiven but we keep a record of it. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. So take the sandblaster of grace and blast away. Blast away that record. Just blast it away. Leave a clean wall there if as much as lies in you possible. If it's possible, beloved. It meant to take a clay pot clay jar and busted into a thousand pieces so that it could never be put together again. It is history. It is gone. It is irre- irremediably broken. There's no going back. It is done. Those are just a few of what it, uh, word pictures that are given throughout the scriptures by prophets and psalmists to illustrate what forgiveness looks like. It ought to happen between us because it has happened between us and God. Do you see? If God has forgiven us, we are bound, duty bound to forgive one another. Didn't Jesus say, if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Matthew 6, 15 So those who have been forgiven much ought to be quick and ready to forgive others. Amen. May God help us know the joy and the freedom of that. He takes our transgressions and he separates them from us. How far? As far as the east is from the west. Verse 13. He is compassionate to his children like a father. I've heard fathers say, and I've, I can testify to this, I've heard mothers say, they beat us here. They got a head start on us because they say, I'm in love with a person I've never met. And they're talking about that baby in their womb. I just loved it. I don't even, hadn't even seen them yet, hadn't held them yet, hadn't heard them yet. But I'm in love with this little person that I've never even met yet. And then they give birth. And then, and then the daddy takes this baby And I've heard fathers say, when I held my child for the first time, something changed in me. And I began to realize some things. Here is this little, frail creature that is totally dependent on me and its mother. And that heart of that father that may have been totally wrapped up in his world begins to realize there are other things that I need to be giving great attention to. And he has compassion. He's moved with compassion toward this little bitty person. And that compassion from a father, I know some fathers pitifully fail to be a right kind of father. And we said it uh, last time, some fathers are 
cruel and wicked and perverted and utterly selfish. And, but the right father, the ideal father, is something like the Lord. He has compassion toward his, his children. But even the best father is a poor father compared to the Lord. And so we've got, here's my quick outline I'll give to you. The comparison drawn, the comparison drawn like a father, so the Lord. The comparison. The compassion shown. Fathers pity or have compassion. They're moved toward their children. They don't recall away from their children. They're moved toward their children. And the prophet Malachi says when Jesus comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. You can tell God is working in a man when his heart is moved toward his children. He wants to shepherd their hearts and instill in them some things that are essential. Not just how to hit a ball, but how to pray. How to worship God. How to walk with the Lord. When we walk by the way, let's walk and talk. When we sit in the house, when we rise up, we take every moment that we can because we've only got them for just a little thing called about 18 years or so, and then they fly. They may fly back, but they're supposed to launch, right? They're supposed to fly. And, and it's just a little window there that we have. And the father moves toward his child. He's not an interruption, he's not a mistake. He's not impinging upon my precious uh, time of wanting to do this or that. He is my, right at the top of my priority list, right under the Jesus and my wife. Here are these children God's given me. That's how we must learn to think. Have compassion toward our child. The Lord does that for his children. And we know his children, number three, the comparison drawn like a father, so the Lord. The compassion shown, great pity and tenderness. And the conversion known, there's our three points. How do we know those who are his? How do we know them that are his? Because they fear him. They fear him. They act a certain way toward this father. They don't kick against him anymore like they did their whole lives before conversion. They reverence him. They fear him with a filial love, a family love. It's not a slavish fear where we recoil back away from him and want to get away from him and we avoid him. It's not that kind of fear, but we are told to fear God. Not slavishly and not running away from him, but coming toward him lovingly and reverently and submissively. That's those who are his. When Saul is going down the road to arrest Christians in Acts 9... Jesus appears to him and he falls in the dust. And he says to Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm goading you along like an ox driver takes these long sharp sticks and I'm poking you in the rear end and saying, get going this way, this way, this way, this way. And you're kicking. And when you kick back against these sharp goads, hurts, don't it? When you kick against me, Jesus says to Paul, you're Hurting yourself. It's hard, isn't it?
When salvation comes to our hearts, we stop kicking. We don't kick against him anymore. We have taken out of us this heart of rebellion, this heart of, I'm going to do it my way. And nobody's going to tell me what to do. It's my life. Don't you judge me. And we say, it's not my life. It's been bought by another at great cost. And the rest of my life, the goal of my life, going forward, every day God being my helper will be, Lord, what would you have me to do? How may I honor you now for the rest of my days? We stop kicking. We start loving and adoring as we sang this morning. Come let us adore him. This fatherly picture, a father pitying his children, having compassion, being moved with tenderness toward his child. His child falls down. What does the father do? Shame him. Pop him. Oh, come here. You're doing, you're doing good. Come here. Let me help you up. Let's try this again. He lifts him up. And he holds his hand. He's, it's, a, it's a picture of a, an intimate, involved, concerned, compassionate father over his children. That's something, just a little something like the Lord with his people. What a picture it is. And it's even sweeter when you get to the New Testament and God takes that precious Doctrine called the doctrine of adoption. Where God, the Father, who has one son, perfect and obedient and never strayed from him, the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, his monogenes, his one-of-a-kind son, who always does the Father's will. And the Father says, I'm well pleased with my son. And the son comes and dies on a cross for a great number who will believe. And all who believe are brought into the family and adopted. So that when Jesus prays to the father and he says, you, my brothers and sisters, now you may pray to the father too. He's your father now too. So when you pray, pray like this, our Father which art in heaven. He taught us to pray to the Father because we've been adopted. We were wicked rebels against him. And he came after us and adopted us, gave us his name. And in the miracle of salvation, he even gives us something of his nature. You can't do that on the human level. You can adopt a child. You can give them your name. You can go to great expense and adopt this child. But you can't ever give them your nature. They never have your DNA but in the miracle of salvation, God gives us in the new birth something of his nature and his name and his spirit. And when Jesus says, Father, he gives us the privilege to call God our Father. And when the Father loves Jesus, he, his love just goes out wide and far and broad and deep so that it encompasses and includes those of us that are joined to Jesus, rebels but now adopted. So when you think of Psalm 103.13, a father pitying his children, the Lord pitying his children who fear him, think of that great New Testament doctrine that opens that up and amplifies that even more wonderfully, the doctrine of adoption. So that we cry as adopted ones, Abba, Father. 
Romans 8, Galatians 4 are the scriptures. Adoption. You're no longer uh, orphans. You're no longer cut off. In Jesus, you've been brought close. You've been brought in. Are you understanding this? Are you hearing, grasping? This is the theological reality. You say, well, I don't feel it. I just can't feel it. I'm not talking about something going on in you and your chemicals or your electrical impulses. I'm not talking about something in you. I'm talking about an objective reality that's outside of you. If you have believed on Jesus, this is a theological fact. And your feelings may rise and they may fall. And they may rise and they may fall. They may soar and you feel it and you sing. And they may drop out and you say, I just feel hollow. I don't feel a thing. And not one time will that fact change. It is certain and solid and true. The changing is going on in us. But it never goes on in, in the covenant. This new covenant instituted at the cross where Jesus pours out his blood. Ratified and sealed and, and made good there. And then his resurrection guarantees it. Sin was dealt with. The law was fulfilled. The law was fulfilled in that it cursed and damns and dooms all who violate the law. And Jesus is treated as our substitute. And he bears the wrath of the law. And now he gives us a new heart to want to obey his law. And to walk in obedience to him out of gratitude. So let me just close with this and... It's where the psalm started. I would urge all of us to cultivate, beloved, a a heart of gratitude. I was taught as a baby, a little boy, when somebody gives you something, you say thank you. And if you don't, you're being rude. It's just bad manners not to say thank you. And I always think of that joke where the little boy is going through the grocery store line. He's caught there in the line there's an old lady ahead of him and the old lady gives him a piece of candy and his mom says what do you tell her and the little boy says charge it she said no not that one what do you tell her thank you yeah good boy thank you thank you thank you it's bad manners it's bad it's rude it's utterly selfish and wicked not to say thank you When someone does something for you, what has our God done for us? What has he done? Think of his benefits and bless him with all that is in you. Amen. Let's stand.